good. Good morning then. Um, this morning, yes, we're going to be looking at the book of the prophet Haggai, and hopefully most members of the church here in Tadley will have perhaps read through it or might have seen Greg's overview on YouTube. However, for those of you who have not managed this or are visitors today, I'm going to give a brief introduction, some background, some context and content to think about. So Haggai is one of the smaller prophetic books. It comes towards the very end of the Old Testament, but is crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew people. For centuries, the Hebrew prophets have been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice. They warned that God would send the great empire Babylon to overthrow Jerusalem, destroy the temple and haul off the people into exile. And that all that happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was a future hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people, Israel, to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would be in their midst. Following the collapse and overthrow of the Babylonian Empire, the ancient world was now ruled by the Persians. In 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued a decree permitting the conquered people who had been deported by the Babylonians to return to their homeland. And the first wave of emigrants returned to Jerusalem led by Sheshubal, a prince of Judah and the first governor of the restored community. In their enthusiasm, they began to rebuild the altar and the temple walls, but the locals threatened and discouraged them so much that construction halted and the site lay neglected for nearly 20 years. The Hebrew people grew more and more gloomy. Selfishness crippled the community spirit. Apathy and disillusionment detracted from their worship. And on top of all this, a severe drought and a famine hit the land. So we're now in the year 520 BC, almost 70 years after the exile. And this is when Haggai comes on the scene. Jerusalem is now under the leadership of the high priest Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir of the line of David, is the new governor. The book of Haggai consists of four sections that summarise each of Haggai's four messages given to the people of Jerusalem over a period of just about four months. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, he opens by accusing the people of misplaced priorities. Yes, they've been brought back out of exile to Jerusalem, but they're spending their time and resources rebuilding their own homes, while the temple of God still remains in ruins. This neglect, Haggai says, is tantamount to the covenant rebellion of their ancestors, which is why the land is still unproductive and why they've been struck by famine and drought. Here Haggai is referring back to the list of curses in the book of Deuteronomy with which they would have been familiar. And so Haggai's challenging words are a wake-up call to the Israelites. This is then followed by a story of the people's response. We're told that Zerubbabel, Joshua and the remnant of the people were provoked by Haggai's message and were re-motivated and immediately start to rebuild the temple. A month later, and the second section of the book, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, Haggai speaks again. He starts by addressing some people of shattered expectations amongst them. It seems the temple they're rebuilding looks pretty unimpressive to some of the folk. It's nothing like the glorious temple Solomon had built some 500 years earlier. Also, morale remains low and the building work is stuttering to a halt. Sorry, I've lost my place. 
Haggai, here we are. Sorry, I apologize for that. Haggai remain, reminds the people of the great prophetic promises of a future kingdom of God and how his temple will be central to it. He draws from earlier promises given by the prophets, especially Isaiah and Micah, about the new Jerusalem and how it would be a place from which God would redeem the whole world, resulting in an era of peace. So he calls on the people to work on in hope, despite their discouragement and disappointing circumstances. And this effect has the effect of a second wake-up call and rebuilding starts in earnest. In chapter 2, verses 10 to 19, the third section of the book, Haggai follows up some two months later with a call to covenant faithfulness. It seems, despite Haggai's previous words about God's blessings and an end to the drought and a promise of fertile lands with good harvests, there's still no rain and the land remains barren. So Haggai engages some of the priests in conversation about ritual purity. He says if someone goes and touches a dead body and becomes ritually impure, and then they touch some food, is that food not impure too? And the priests know in the book of Leviticus say, yes, it's impure. Then Haggai turns this into a parable. He says, this is how it is with the people. If the current generation don't humble themselves, if they don't turn from justice and apathy, whatever they put their hands to, including the building of this new temple, will be impure too. So the choice Haggai is laying before the exiled generation is very similar to the challenge Moses gave to the wilderness generation before they entered the promised land. Obedience will lead to blessing and success. Faithlessness will lead to ruin. Haggai's message causes them to seek out God's forgiveness and to turn from their sinful ways. A third wake-up call, which restores their faith, puts them right with God, and construction continues. The final section of the book, verses 20 to 23 of chapter 2, conclude with Haggai's summary of a future hope of God's promise. He's going to make Jerusalem the centre of his glorious kingdom, and from there he'll confront and defeat evil among the nations. Haggai reminds the people of God's promises to David, and that he will establish a king from David's line. And so the book ends with a promise of a bright future just hanging in there. The questions we're left with, will Haggai's generation be faithful? Will they experience the fulfillment of the promises? And Zerubbabel, will he be faithful? Will he turn out to be the messianic king? Well, to find out, you have to keep reading into the final two books of the prophets, Zechariah and Malachi. And of course, we've got the New Testament books and someone called Jesus to give us the answers. But I believe this little book contains a great challenge and perhaps a wake up call for us today. Our choices really matter and the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how he's chosen to work out his promises into the world. This truth should motivate humility and action in God's people. And as we look forward to what he has in store, we must remember the message from the book of Haggai, because that's what it's all about. And that's also the end of the first part of my message this morning. When I come back, we'll consider certain key parts of the story in more detail and how they might assist us in going forward with God as community church. Straight on from there. Okay, thanks, Rob. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to talk again. Um, carrying on with Haggai. When Greg asked me to speak on the book of Haggai, 
He said it was because he had felt for a while that this was an important book for us as a church to consider. And that perhaps I'll give it some thought and prayer and see what I felt God was saying, um, especially as we start to emerge from lockdown. So as I said earlier, there are four main prophetic words spoken by Haggai over a period of about four months concerning what God was saying to the people and the leaders in Jerusalem. And in line with these prophecies, I've given each a separate heading as a form of encouragement this morning. So I've asked Carmen to put the first slide up for me. Thank you. So this is what I've sort of titled each part or each of the four prophecies. The first is move forward in God's promise. The second, move forward in harmony. Move forward in obedience and faithfulness and move forward in Christ. Thank you, Khan. So the first prophecy, move forward in God's promise. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Haggai was living and prophesying in Jerusalem at the same time as Zechariah, and together with Malachi is one of the three post-exilic prophets of the Old Testament. Previously, all prophecies had warned about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish nation. Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi brought a more hopeful message to the remnants returning from Israel, that God was going to restore the nation and bless the people. And then everything went silent until the time of John the Baptist, a period of about 400 years. The word Haggai brings comes in the form of questions. The first is about commitment and priorities of the people in fulfilling their promises to God. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in panelled houses whilst this house remains in ruins? You've just suffered a series of setbacks. Food and money are short, opposition is high, the rains haven't come, drought and famine are becoming a real problem. And so you're thinking is that it must be the wrong time to start back at church. Well, he doesn't actually say about going back to church. He talks about returning to temple worship. The altar was complete, the foundations were prepared, but the walls were only knee high. And God says, when they stopped putting him first and the temple building works halted, that was when things started to go wrong. What happened was that they had let God go of God's promises given by the prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel about a new Jerusalem and a new temple, and instead had become centered on themselves and what they thought would be best. So what's God saying to us today about our worship of him post-COVID? What are our priorities as we move from an exile of lockdown back down back into communal church worship? Well, we know Greg will be stepping down as church leader in October, which will mean changes in the leadership. And as the eldership seeks God's direction, we may well see changes in the way we do church going forward. Personally, I believe we're not just see changes in our ways of worship locally, but that we're entering a new era of church altogether. A change that God is bringing about not just in Tadley, not even just in this nation, but about his people worldwide. Just as the Israelites were provided with the materials to start rebuilding God's temple, I believe in these days we're being enabled and equipped by God 
to reach out to more and more people in more and more places in more and more ways. Because time is getting short and he wants his people ready for his return. It was the birth of the church in the first and second centuries as Christianity expanded and the seed of God's word was cast further abroad. Small Christian communities were established meeting and worshiping together, leading to the flowering of the church here in the West during the 11th and 12th centuries. Dedicated church buildings started to appear and with the translation of the Bible from Latin into the common languages during the 13th and 14th century, God's written word was made available to more people. Then followed the Reformation during the 16th and 17th century when bigger and grander church buildings started to appear and the number of followers of Christ blossomed. Post 1700s and the so-called Age of Enlightenment, the church entered an age of division and denominationalism, which bizarrely encouraged further church growth and the appearance of chapels and places of worships in towns and villages across the land. This was followed by an age of spiritual reawakening in the 19th century and the missionary thrust of the early 20th century, when the number of people accepting God grew exponentially. The latter part of the 20th century, this present age, we've experienced an era of church liberalization and with its schisms, the establishment of other belief churches, the rapid growth of a multi-faith society and a gradual fall in church attendance in the UK at least. Church buildings now sit empty or have been repurposed. Materialism, consumerism and self-importance have taken hold. Looking after number one has become the mantra, while worship of God as number one seems to have dwindled. Have we perhaps become a bit like the people in Haggai's day? Have we let go of God's promises? And what will the 21st century bring? An age of change and technological advancement for sure. An era of the world wide web and virtual church in its infancy perhaps. But I believe it will also usher in a greater opportunity to reach out and present the gospel to more people. A new God-given opportunity for Christianity to expand in different ways and become a force of change again, both in this country and across the nations. Maybe here in Tadley, we need to re-examine our own priorities. God has spoken to us as a church, both in the past and more recently, about a time of being shaken, and COVID's certainly done that. About providing us with new clothes to put on and new responsibilities and opportunities to grasp. About a time of dispersal from the church back into society. About a small group of believers remaining dedicated to prayer. And about a reunion with more people coming in and following a time of tears, a time of exceptional growth. So let's hold on to God's promises and let's move forward, holding on to them. The second part of the prophecy is entitled Move Forward in Harmony. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. The people had restarted works on the temple, however, just over a month on, and Haggai's first message and Haggai's first message, morale, was flagging again, mainly because some of the older people had started moaning. Well, of course, it's nice to be going back to church, 
but it will be nothing like it used to be. Negative comments can have a devastating and divisive effect on those around us, and they can undermine the confidence of church builders and leaders. But the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time. Do not despise the day of small things. He got them stirred up again, and off they went with the rebuilding program. Harmony and mutual encouragement between God's people is so vitally important in growing a strong and vibrant Christian society. Many of Paul's letters are sent to deal with disharmony and discord amongst believers. We may not all see things the same way. We all have memories and past experiences we can draw on and perhaps think were better in our day. Perhaps we may not even all agree with the way that the church leaders are handling certain situations or changes. But that shouldn't stop us from giving our support and our grace in moving forward with a building programme. In the fourth verse of Haggai chapter 2, God tells the people three times, be strong. Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Why should they be strong of one heart and mind and purpose? What does such harmony achieve? Well, at the end of the verse, we find the answer. God says, when you are strong, I am with you, declares the Lord. Hebrews 3.6 says, but Christ, God's faithful son, is in complete charge of God's house. And we Christians are God's house. He lives in us if we keep up our courage firm to the end and our joy and our trust in the Lord. As we move forward together in God's plans and purposes for the church at CCT, trusting in his promises, let's move forward in harmony and strength together. For if we do this, then his promise to us is, I am with you. The third prophecy, move forward in obedience and faithfulness. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Another two months have passed, and again the people are starting to flag and mumble amongst themselves. <laughs> All very well, the leader's telling us to stick to what we've started and that God will bless us. The temple may be getting there, but there's no rain. The lands are barren, the food's running short. We've done our bit, we've done what the priests ask. Where's our reward? Then Haggai speaks the word of the Lord to them a, th a third time. I don't envy him this one because it's not an easy word for him to bring. He tells them that God is saying, you still don't understand what I've been asking you to do. Go to the priests, ask them these questions about the laws concerning touching consecrated and unconsecrated meat and about clean people becoming defiled by touching the dead. So they go to the priests and the priests tell them, but if you mix the godly with the ungodly, then the godly will become defiled. And Haggai says, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. You're building a consecrated temple using unconsecrated hands, he says. This sinful people are contaminating the temple by not putting their lives right first. 
Now, we aren't told what the people have been up to, but they got the message and they put things right. And God said, from this day forward, I will bless you. And the very next day, it started to rain. Sometimes we can wait and wait for God to move, worshipping, praying, trusting. And yet nothing seems to change. You know, it could be that God's waiting for us to change. We each now represent God's temple inhabited by his Holy Spirit. Maybe we need that same spirit to show us if there's anything on our lives that's not pleasing to him. There was a logo in Christian ministry back in the 70s, I think, that said dirty hands, clean heart, you may remember. I think it was used in relation to doing stuff for God. But perhaps a more poignant logo for today would be clean hands, clean minds, clean heart. If we're seeking God's blessing as we move forward, then before we point the finger at other people's lives, let's take a look at our own and put anything right that God might highlight. It might not be touching a dead body, not literally anyway, but rubbing shoulders with worldly things, unclean thoughts, even a little gossip can affect us and may require repentance. Paul lists some of the things that the folk needed to be aware of being solid by in his letters to the churches that he helped establish. And remember, these letters were sent to Christians. Galatians 5, 19, 20. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. So far, so good. He continues, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Do any of these apply to us, perhaps? How about 2 Timothy 2.23? Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. Or Ephesians 4.25, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Or Colossians 3, Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, malice, rage, slander, filthy language from your lips. And I could carry on, but we all get the picture, I'm sure. As we move forward, seeking God's will in obedience and faith for his church in Tadley, we must do so with clean hearts, continually asking God to reveal anything that may hinder us repeating David's prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart, test my thoughts. Point out anything you find in me that makes you sad and then lead me along the paths of everlasting life. And God said to his people, now give careful thought to this from this day on. And once the people had repented, God said, from this day on, I will bless you. And so we come to the fourth prophecy, move forward in Christ. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the seventh month. This message is spoken by Haggai on the same day as the third, but he addresses Zerubbabel directly. I'll make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. A signet ring was worn by royalty. It had a seal etched onto it that could be pressed into parchment or clay or hot wax to authenticate a real command or a document. 
it was a seal of approval. And what God said to Zerubbabel was from you, the royal line will be established. And there will come a day when I will shake the nations and overthrow their thrones. And I will establish the throne of God. And your name, Zerubbabel, will be on it. There have been some series on the television recently all about ancestry, from the likes of Who Do You Think You Are on the BBC to the more recent DNA journey on ITV. I don't know if you've seen any of those. I trace my own family tree, and so far I've got back on my father's side to a Charles and Sarah Cantell, who lived in the village of Daglingworth near Sorencester in Gloucestershire in about 1755. That seems pretty impressive, except the village dates back to 1015, so I'm sure there's some Cantels lurking around the fields there somewhere. The most recent trend is gene mapping, which uses something called mitochondrial DNA to trace a person's original ethnicity and to discover family relations along the way. Scientists have discovered recently that a small chromosome found in the female cell is passed exclusively from the mother to her offspring. And that while mitochondria is also present in the male sperm, it's completely destroyed by the egg at fertilization. So genealogical researchers have now been able to use this DNA to trace our maternal lineage all the way back to a single female who was the progenitor of all humankind. And they have called her mitochondrial Eve. Isn't that amazing? But I'm doing a Greg, I'm digressing a bit here. Uh, let's move back to Zerubbabel because all that is nothing when we consider another even more amazing thing when we look at the genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. One of these is of Joseph's line and can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The other is of Mary's line, which can be found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 23 to 28. And they both track back through the family lines of Jesus to King David and beyond to Abraham. And of course, from the book of Genesis, we can trace the descendants of Abraham all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's a shame the scientists never checked the Bible, isn't it? They could have saved themselves a lot of effort. So if we can have the next slide up, please, Carmen. Thank you. So this is a simplified family tree of Jesus. From David, the family tree divides and generations later rejoins in Zerubbabel through the families of Solomon and Nathan. Then it divides again, and further generations later, it rejoins through Joseph and Mary. And we can see that Zerubbabel is on both sides of Jesus's family tree. So Haggai got it spot on. Through Zerubbabel, the royal line of David continued. The throne of God was established, culminating with Jesus as the king of all mankind. Thank you. As I've already explained, the signet ring promised to Zerubbabel was given as a sign of God's approval, a seal of office, a confirmation of his royal heritage. To all who believe in Jesus as God's own son, in his death and resurrection, in his return to heaven to reign, and in his sending of the Holy Spirit to live within all who believe, we too have been sealed with God's approval, and we too now form part of his royal lineage. 
2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 1 Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 also confirms, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of God's Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so to conclude this morning, I believe God's word for us is this. As you move out of lockdown into the future inheritance I have in store, both for you as individuals and as a church, move forward securing my promises and move forward together in Christ. The message, message of Haggai can be summed up quite simply. Put first things first, particularly put God first, a teaching taken up by Jesus time and again in the Gospels. It is easy to get caught up in life, seeking things around us and ending up chasing after what we want rather than what we need, which is to put God first. The Bible tells us if we do that, all things will be added to you. And so from the message spoken by Haggai to God's people returning to worship from a time of lockdown in Babylon, I bring a word from God and four words of encouragement from Haggai to each person listening today. As we move forward in building God's church together in Tadley and in the world beyond, let's move forward in God's promise. Move forward in harmony. Move forward in obedience and faithfulness. And then we will move forward in Christ. Amen.